You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Four Good Days, starring Mila Kunis and Glenn Close, and based on the reporting of Washington Post national reporter Eli Saslow, tells the story of a young addict who must not use drugs for four days to receive a promising treatment. Kunis, director Rodrigo Garcia, and Saslow join Washington Post Live for a conversation about the trauma of addiction and bringing this true story to life on the big screen. Let's listen. Good evening. I'm Ann Hornaday, chief film critic at the Washington Post, and I am thrilled to be joined by Mila Kunis, who stars in the Wait, I can't film hear. Four Good Days. Mila is joined by the that. film's director, oh, Rodrigo Garcia. And my colleague, Washington Post national reporter Eli Zaslow, who co-wrote the movie with Rodrigo. And of course, the film is based on a 2016 article that Eli published in the Post. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Hi. It's great to see you all. Eli, um, let's start with you because it starts with you. You wrote this extraordinary story in 2016 um, that was really cinematic, I think, in its own right. I think your writing is very cinematic. It's very character-driven and, and scene-setting. What was the most important thing for you to preserve uh, about this story when you went to adapt it for the screen? Well, first off, that's that's kind. Thanks, Anne. Um, you know, I think uh, the most important thing, I guess, was to preserve sort of the emotional truth of it, um, which is that you know, I, I set out to report that story because we were in the middle of, we're still in the middle of uh, an overdose epidemic that's killing 80,000 Americans every year. Um, it's, it's a massive ongoing tragedy uh, where we have huge numbers of people in active addiction who are sort of um, numbing themselves out to the, the circumstances of their lives. And I was trying to find somebody who is in the process of trying to become unnumb, who was who going to try a new treatment for, for opioid addiction um, and, and see if it would maybe be, be a way to finally start getting clean. Uh, and, and once I was there spending time with these two women, Libby and Amanda, what was also clear was that it was a, a codependent, complicated mother-daughter relationship um, in, in a cycle of addiction that had defined this family for a decade. And, and I think preserving sort of the, the truth in the heart of, of that relationship, the toll it had taken on them, and also the the, the love in the heart that was still there felt like a, a really important thing to, to both Rodrigo and I when we started the project. So Rodrigo, I'd like to bring you in. Did did you read the article and immediately see it as a movie, or did this come? Did did Eli write something on spec? Tell us a little bit about the genesis of the film. No, I I read the article and uh, yes, it was very tempting. I, I mean, there's always a, a moment of hesitation because, and I don't mean to sound callous when I say this, but you know, addiction stories are tragic, not just for the addict but for the family. But sadly, they are you know, not unsimilar the one to the other, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a tragedy, but, you know, is, is there a movie here? What I liked about the article was really the, the, these two particular characters and the mother daughter relationship, and also how the story began already 11 years into the, you know, into this tragedy and, and how, how tired the mother was and, and how, you know, 
pissed off they were with each other and, and just the level of exhaustion. You know, you're starting at the bottom. Yes, there's some good intentions. Of course, they still love each other, but they were, they're both just so over it. And I thought that, that, uh, that was fresh. Uh, from a storytelling point of view. And, and then, of course, it had that, you know, ticking clock, which never fails in movies. <laughs> Indeed. And and Mila, you know, this is an incredible performance, um, so impressive. And I think what I appreciated about your performance is that you play a daughter. You know, you're not playing that that kind of addict character that I think we have seen um, and that we might be expecting. But tell us a little bit, and, and it's not just a daughter, you're also a mother. So can you just tell us a little bit about how you, you seem to be playing on a lot of levels at once in this film? Um, thank you. I don't know. I think I have a lot to say. Thank, I'm, I'm very grateful to Rodrigo, I will tell you, and, and to Glenn for the day-to-day, -day, the everyday. I mean, these type of movies can take on a character of their own during production. And um, and I will give uh, Rodrigo all the credit for setting a really beautiful working environment where you feel really safe and some place that you can play around in and, and feel safe in that world. Um, and then the testament to Eli for simply writing a very uh, well-rounded character. I think that oftentimes we look at um, a character from a single lens and I think that in this particular script, given the fact that it takes place over four days in one location where it's just two people talking, you are able to actually explore all the facets of a human. And um, in particular, my character, yes, yeah, she's a daughter, she's a mother, she's an addict, and probably not in that order. Um, so it was just more fun than anything, because that is no, no single person's just one thing. I think we're all, you know, juggling a million which ways. We're all someone's kid. We, some of us have children. Some of us have partners. We're someone's husband. We're someone's wife. We're someone's daughter. We're someone's son. Like, there's all these different elements to us that make us who we are. Exactly. And I just, I so appreciated the nuance with which all of you, the whole creative team, um, approached that and, and made that incredibly. You also undergo a remarkable physical transformation. We can see that in the trailer. When when you're going through that, the, the makeup mm -hmm. and the hair and the prosthetics, tell how does that, uh, do, you, do you feel like you're turning in? I remember Michael Douglas once told me when he did Wall Street, once he got that suit on and he lit that first cigarette of the day, he was Gordon Gecko. like it helped. So tell us a little bit about that transformation. For me, um, you know, I had, I think at the time, maybe like eight months to lose weight, to look like a heroin addict, um, which is enough time, right? Like for me, I'm pretty small build anyway. So given five to 10 pounds makes a very large impact on my um, physique. So uh, weight loss aside, I, um, I think that when we talked about her visual, the wardrobe stylist actually came across a, a couple different visuals to like help facilitate the character's look. And there was one in particular and I looked at this girl and I was like, I want this hair. And they were like, okay, so let's get you a wig. And I was like, no, I think I'm gonna go and bleach my hair. And um, and they were like, okay. Rodrigo's like, yeah, do it. So I, I will tell you the hardest part was simply finding a stylist or a hair colorist that would allow me to color my hair purposefully to look bad was one of the hardest, funniest things to go through. Cause I was like, no, 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 I intentionally, I want roots. 
And I wanted to look like she went like this with some green dye. And they're like, I don't understand. And I was like, just give me the dye. And then when we were doing the hair coloring process, I took the dye in my hands and I was like, like this, like this. It's very easy. Like, the, don't touch it. And I was like, don't make it look pretty. And I felt like the, the colorist was having like a, a panic attack. But when that was all done and I looked at myself in the mirror, I genuinely was like, oh, I can do it now. So for me, above all else, was having this visual, I mean, I look sickly, right? Like I looked like I was already unhealthy due to my weight loss. And then on top of it, I just didn't look like myself with bleached yellow hair, dark black roots. And it was all off of a photo that I saw online. And I'm super grateful for having that photograph. So I mm. love the transformation. Mm. I loved it. As far as like the pop marks and the, um, the that kind of stuff, probably less so of an impact on me daily than it did looking at myself in the mirror and not recognizing myself. Yeah. Were you able, were you and Glenn, are you, were you able to spend some time with Libby and Amanda, the, the mother and daughter that, that Eli wrote about? Um, I would say pretty minimal time. Who was that? Oh, I'm on Washington Post. Oh. My, this is the thing about Zoom. I was like, I'm going to the bathroom, guys. I was like, okay, babe. Yeah, guys, you know, I'm going to you know, take care of some family business. I mean, guys. We're there. It's a pandemic. It's, it's the life we live. It's, it's real, right? Um, the Glenn and I, yes, on Zoom. We spent minimal time on Zoom. We chatted with them. I think I spoke to her maybe twice, maybe. Um, the, the thing about it was they're now in a place where they've made amends with where they were. And so talking to them about where she was, it's a little hard. That's the truth. I think whenever you talk to an addict about where they were 10 years ago, their perception of reality is going to be skewed. Um, and so I didn't want that to skew what Eli had written. And I didn't want her to think that I was going to be imitating her or mimicking her or doing a, an impersonation of her. So for me, less her, I think, was more watching videos of um, addicts talking about being an addict while still being an addict. That to me was more interesting than actually talking to an addict post-addiction or post-rehab. Fascinating. Um, this really is a story of two recoveries. You know, it's it's um, it's Molly's recovery, Mila, your character's recovery, and it's also Deb's recovery from all those years, as Rodrigo is saying. You know, she's had it. She's over it. We saw that great clip in the trailer of her just shutting the door. So many years of deceit and betrayal and pain. I'd like to show a clip from the movie, um, and then Mila and Rodrigo, we can circle back and talk about it after but let's roll the clip oh god i'm fuck i'm so sorry wish i'd been around yeah you should have been like it was just so sudden you know one day you were putting notes in my lunchbox and then the next you disappeared on your little two-year hiatus I thought you can stand to be around us, around me. That wasn't it. You know that's not true. Do I? Haven't we been over this a lot? Rodrigo, you've worked with Glenn Close quite a few times now. Tell us about casting her, how you talked to her about the role, and how you worked with her and Mila in developing that incredible dynamic. 
Well, you know, I, I think, you know, for me, the the biggest piece of direction is the script itself. You know, it's it's what, you know, it tells you what I'm interested in, how I'm interested in, in seeing it. It says something about the tone. It says something about, you know, the aspect that I'm interested in. So, um, you know, I, I, the actors read the script. I tell them how I see it, and then I wait for them to suggest things, and I react to them. You know, I don't. I think, you know, Mila was talking before about how she came to the physicality of it all. Um, you know, obviously the script said that she looked very diminished, to say it kindly, after you know being on the streets in, in the most recent chapter for for months or a couple of years. Um, but, you know, actors, good actors are great at this. You know, I waited for her to pick the, uh, the hair and what the skin might look like and how much she should weigh. Um, you know, I'm, I'm basically waiting to react. And the same with Glenn. You know, when you're working with artists like that, I think it's better to delay direction so that the actors aren't working with the director's voice in their head. You know, I'll answer questions if you want me to, but, you know, tell me where you're at. Tell me what you're responding to. Um, if, if something comes back to me that, I'm, that I don't understand or I don't like, then I'll speak up. Um, but I'm, I'm usually, you know, I think often it should be called reacting and not directing. You know, you have to leave a space there for, for the other artists to step in and, and, and make it theirs. A lot of, of, you know, what you call the dynamic, the, the, um, the relationship between them was in the script and it was in the article. Um, you know, a lot of love and a lot of suspicion and mutual exhaustion and mistrust and, uh, and all of it sort of, you know, revolving 24 seven. Now I love you. Now I don't. Now I trust you. Now I don't trust you. You know, it's that ongoing spinning wheel. And under it, of course, hope, you know, hope, which is essential, you know, it helps us get out of bed in the morning. And yet it, it, you know, it can be slippery. You know, I think in some ways, you know, we, we thought of, of the character of the mother as someone whose addiction was hope, but can you blame her? Well said. I miss you, um, Rodrigo. <laughs> hey. And Eli, you know, um, I can't imagine what it must be like to be a newspaper reporter and then pivoting and writing a script of your own story. Tell us about, was it hard to let go of certain things? Were there things you wanted to uh, keep in or did you feel completely liberated? I mean, that must have been quite a challenge. Yeah, it was it was strange. I mean, um, you know, normally, obviously, as a journalist, uh, if I make anything up, I, I get fired. I, I would I would lose my job. So um, learning to sort of have the liberty to uh, to to change things when they worked better for the story, um, and to realize that I, uh, you know, Rodrigo and I weren't writing exactly the story of these two women, but but the story of Deb and Molly uh, was a learning process for me. I think I was super lucky to be working with um, you know Rodrigo and Mila and also Glenn, who were not only uh, generous and kind, um, but also like really collaborative um, and, and going back and forth with Rodrigo on versions of the script. Um, but there were moments where it was just a little bit strange because, you know, not only did I write the story, but I was, you know, as a journalist, it's my job to witness the things that I write about. So I, I'm not only calling and talking to the people 
on the phone, I'm, I'm there embedded in their lives. And, and so many of the things that ended up being scenes in the movie, I was there in the car for um, with, with Amanda and Libby as they were unfolding in real time. So I, I remember on set sort of walking through um, the, the trap house, the, the drug house uh, that, that was, was set up on the set and done you know, remarkably well and, and just feeling like um, it was so strange and bizarre to have been in that place, uh, you know, with with Amanda and Libby in real life, and then and then seeing it um, recreated for the film. So mostly it was it was huge a huge gift uh, and, and a great learning experience. Wow, I you was know, I was going know, to ask. And, you that. I, I was going to say, Anne, that one of the few unpleasant things about working on this thing was that. You know, uh, Eli and I worked together at the beginning, trying to, you know, break down what, what the, the bones of the story was going to be. And then we, you know, he would write a draft. I would, I would correct it, send it to him. He would rewrite it. I would rewrite it. And the horrible thing was, you know, usually when you hand your co-writer a draft, you feel like you're on vacation. But of course, Eli works at reporter speed. So sometimes he would return his draft two days later. And that was just insufferable. Absolutely I, insufferable. I, I love I love the indication of my reporting speed here. I'm definitely going to save this clip and send it to my editor, who's waiting for a draft of a story that's a little overdue. So thanks, Rodrigo. Well, you know, in, in, in movies, sometimes we wait for a draft for twelve to fourteen months. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was you know we also had the first thing that that Rodrigo and I did together um, after the after the story ran and and after we decided to work on this was the two of us made a trip to go spend time with Libby and Amanda and you know and, and I think. That deepened my own knowledge of their situation, and and for Rodrigo and I, we spent a day in the car driving around with Amanda and sort of touring through the places where she used to get high or where things had happened in their lives. Um, and I think that was a hugely helpful trip, also just for texture. Um, and, and and you also mentioned earlier, Anne, like sort of thinking about the the ways that um, Mila and Glenn, you know, interacted with with Libby and Amanda and learned from them. Um, one thing I, I remember from Glenn that sticks with me is that you know, Libby, every morning uh, while Amanda was was in the throes of this addiction, the first thing she would do, she would wake up and she would go on this Facebook page um, called The Addict's Mom, which is, there, there are about 30,000 members of this page. And every morning it's parents from around the country posting about what's going on with their kids. Um, and, and it's kind of this real-time diary uh, of, of the heartache of, of, of this epidemic. Um, and, and during some of the filming, Glenn would ask for me to send her, you know, send me, send me a bunch of the things that are on the addict's mom this morning, um, which was similar, frankly, to how, how Libby wakes up every day. So I, I think that, that helped her in some ways too. You know, that brings up what, what impresses me so much about this movie. I, I am old enough. I don't think uh, Mila and Eli, you're too young to remember. I mean, Rodrigo, maybe you might remember Go Ask Alice, which was the big scare movie in my generation. That was the, you know, that was the yeah. movie they made to scare us straight from doing drugs. And we've come a long way, you know, from those, from that kind of a genre. And, and just what you just said about the Facebook moms, I mean, this is existing in a changed world. And I think um, I, I would like for for all of you really to tell me a little bit about where where you want to where you want this to land and, and what you want this to accomplish, um, as opposed to those older sort of addiction narratives that we've all grown up with. Maybe I'll start with um, I'll start with Rodrigo on this one. <clears throat> Well, I mean, from the from the selfish point of view of of telling a story and putting it out there, you know, it must resonate with the people that have gone through it. 
you know, otherwise you have failed completely. Um, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, judging from the comments that, that I've read and even received or that have been published or that we see on, on blog posts or, or on social media, you know, people who have gone through things like this identify with this a lot. And I think, you know, one of the main things is, is to, to remind one more time that the person with an addiction is more than the person with an addiction. You know, the, unfortunately, one of the first things addiction does is rob you of your personality. You just become a drug-seeking thing. But, you know, there's still a person there. And, and uh, you know, it, it's, it's a good reminder, I think. Any story that humanizes someone going through something unimaginable, you know, I think is necessary. Um, and, and it's another reminder that, you know, it, it, it's a a medical issue rather than a criminal issue. So, I mean, not, not to get all sociopolitical, but uh, you know, it, it, it is in that way, a political film also, you know, it, it, it's not just a person with an addiction. It's a person with a whole world like mine and like yours, who, you know, has fallen into this terrible trap. Mila, did, did working on this film change your understanding of addiction? I mean, did you come in with some certain assumptions that, that were transformed as a result of, of doing the project? Oh, yeah. I think, um, I, yeah, you know what it is? It's the fact that all the movies that, that you were mentioning or like the after school specials that, for instance, I grew up with, everything was all a scare tactic. It was like, don't do this. It's bad. You will die this is scary, don't do drugs, right? Like that's what it was. And I think that there's humanity behind addiction. And I think only recently have we as society identified addiction as a sickness. I think before we looked at it as a choice, you, you have a choice, like just stop doing drugs, right? And I myself was, you know, in my twenties when my friends were addicted to drugs, I was like, I don't, I don't wanna say it, just, just stop. Like, just don't do it. And, um, and it's so much easier said than done. And I am really fortunate that I didn't fall into that trap. And I also in my 20s didn't allow myself to have sympathy for somebody who did. And so doing this film and trying to genuinely wrap my head around somebody who's so addicted and it's such a sickness that they can't even stop it for their children. I myself in my 20s would have been like, that's not possible. And now having kids, I look at it and I go, there's nothing, I would move a mountain for my children. How, how, what's the psychology behind not being able to stop doing drugs? And so I think that I become a very different person. I think that there's like a, an honest disease that we need to acknowledge and wrap our head around and realize that it's more than just a choice of like, do I, do I not? It's not that simple. It's not so black and white. You know, and, and, as a mother, I will add that I think one of the most powerful scenes in the film is, is between Stephen Root, who plays Chris, um, Deb's husband, where they're just talking about, he's talking about the utter randomness of this and how it can happen. It can happen at this point in somebody's life or that point or what, you know, what if the whole contingency of it, I thought was just so, so brilliantly captured in that, um, in that sequence without committing spoilers, because I, I think it kind of gets into this theme. Eli, tell us a little bit about how you wanted to end, because I think that the way that, where you bring us 
it's a very delicate place. It's not, you know, it's it's kind of in between the, a happy ending and a we don't know. And so tell tell us how you came to that and what was important to you about that. Yeah, it's a wonderful question and observation um, and a conversation that Rodrigo and I had uh, a dozen times back and forth writing the script. And even I remember you know, Lila talking about it with you when we were doing the person. I think the biggest thing about the ending to, to this movie for, for me, and, and I, I believe it's true for Rodrigo too, is is that it had to feel authentic. And, and the truth is, like, endings in addiction stories um, are not tidy. Like, the reality is, since I first went to visit... Uh, Libby and Amanda write about her life. She's relapsed and recovered six times. You know, it's it's a story that continues to unfold. And so, making the ending um, too too neat and and uh, and and too clean would would not have done justice to what life as an addict and, and life as a parent of an addict is. Um, at the same time, uh, it felt like an authentic ending also needed to have some versions of hope because particularly in the moment where Amanda is in her life now, still. Um, clean and doing well and every day sort of waking up and taking her addiction on, there's there's hope in that. And what sustains her is that hope. So finding that balance and ways to write into that balance while still making it feel like a satisfying ending um, was 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 definitely one of the trickier parts of the writing process. Uh, and, and, you know, I think Rodrigo and I ended in, a, in what we felt like was a balanced place. Yeah, I was, I'm, I'm happy to hear the update from Libby and Amanda. Have they seen the film? They yeah, have, they, yeah, they've been, uh, yeah, I mean, they've been incredibly generous from the beginning. You know, they obviously Eli had a relationship with them. Then I flew in there and we did the tour that Eli was talking about. Uh, it was a tour of some, you know, really rough neighborhoods where uh, um, Amanda had spent terrible periods of, of her life. And it, it was tough to watch because despite her goodwill and her desire to help us, and of course, I suppose also feeling a little flattered that a movie was going to be made, et cetera. You know, revisiting that, we could see her batteries draining during the day. I mean, you know, she took us to a lot of places and sometime in the middle of the day, she said to us, how long are you guys going to be here? And then I realized, oh, we're asking her to do something really difficult, you know, to, to revisit, to revisit hell. Um, but they were both great. And like Eli said, Amanda has been doing, uh, you know, very well. And, and I think they are, you know, not unhappy with the movie. You know, it's never, it never really is a portrait of you. It's a, it's something that, you know, it, it is you and it's not you. Um, but Amanda has been doing well for a good, for a long time. And, and that's great. You know, obviously I was, you know, personally, I was worried that we would be launching this film and that she wouldn't be doing well, not because of, it would hurt the film in any way, but just because you know how can it would be hard it would have been hard to celebrate telling the story if she had been in a bad place but she's done very well now for quite a while so that's really great yeah and, and i i also think that it's um you know, for them the reason that they allowed me to be there and meet them in the first place and i think the reason they were enthusiastic about this project is because you know addiction is stigmatized heavily stigmatized in this country and and the headline of the original article was how's amanda the the question that that it felt like, you know, that Deb was asked again and again and again, how was her daughter? And it was a question that she was afraid of because she didn't want to talk about it. She didn't know how to answer it. Um, and and I, I believe, you know, that the gift, I hope that this project has given them, and I say it because 
they've told me and, and I know it's true is that now that's a question she feels like she can step into. Like she's she's living out the the truth of what her daughter's been going through more honestly. Um, and I think that was like a hugely courageous thing to do. It's hard to let a stranger come into your life, even harder to then let people fictionalize parts of the story to tell it. Um, you know, and, and so uh, I always want to make sure to to credit how brave that is. Um, and and I, I hope that it's paid off for them in, in, in terms of seeing seeing it destigmatized a little bit. Right. And I think, and again, to your point about the Facebook families, there are very few families left in America who are not touched by some some story of addiction. So the fact that it's so stigmatized is is it's almost ironic because it's happening. You know, it's 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 not really in the shadows anymore. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think we equate addiction with with personal weakness in, in ways that don't make uh, scientific sense necessarily. Um, you know, and that's also informed a lot of how our medical community has treated addiction from, from over the last 20 years. Uh, and, and the way that doctors have obviously been taught to prescribe for pain drove a lot of the opioid epidemic. I think we're seeing some changes now. And I think part of that is because we talk about addiction uh, as, as the, the real medical problem that, is, that it is, rather than as, as like a, a you know, personal weakness or a societal ill. Um, Mila, I'd like to give you, yeah, go ahead. Um, I'd like to give you the last word in terms of how you see your character, Molly, and, and I guess to the, to the degree that she overlaps um, with Amanda, what is the, what's the essence of that character that you would like for the audience to take away from the film? Um. I, you know, I know that this world is this word is overused in um, the zeitgeist, but I do I do honestly believe in empathy. Like I, I think forgiveness and acceptance and um, lack of judgment. I, I just hope that people have a different understanding of what real addiction is like instead of villainizing it, because it's so easy to look at it and be like, well, she's the villain in the story, and. I, I think it's so much more complicated than that. So I, what do I hope people take away from the character is that she's doing the best that she can. And in having then since, you know, once I signed into the project, I ended up talking to a lot more recovering addicts, addicts, people that wouldn't admit that they were addicts. And they're all good people. They really are. It's not like this one villain in the story where they're a horrible person and they're out to get you and they want to do ill in the world. They actually do want to succeed and they just can't figure it out, but they're trying really hard. Well said. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, so we'll have to leave things there. Mila Kunis, Rodrigo Garcia, Eli Zaslow, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an incredible conversation. Thanks. Thanks for having me. See you all. And the movie is Four Good Days. It's on demand now. Please come back and join my Washington Post colleague uh, live on Washington Post Live tomorrow, 10 a.m. Eastern. My colleague David Ignatius will be interviewing the managing director of the IMF, Kristalina Georgieva. You won't want to miss that. As always, thank you for watching. I'm Ann Hornaday. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.